Hello, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Today, we cover the life and presidency of Warren G. Harding, the 29th president of the United States. Now, this is a little bit longer than we are used to doing for our podcast, and we did consider breaking it down into part one and part two, but decided against that because there really wasn't a place to break it up. So, you as the listener can decide where you want to pause. If you want to pause, it's it's a little bit under an hour. Once again, we have Jean-Ann doing the recording remotely with our guest, Sherry Hall, the site manager of the Harding Presidential Sites in Marion, Ohio. Don't forget to subscribe and follow our podcast channels wherever you listen to the podcast and tell a friend. After all, it is free. And now, our resident history expert, Jean-Ann Zanakis. Jeannie, take it away. All right. So today we're going to be discussing the life and the presidency of Warren G. Harding. When Warren G. Harding was running for president, his campaign slogan was a return to normalcy. In the last few years, we have heard that phrase quite a bit. When COVID is over, I will dot, 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 right? That sentence, when COVID is over, almost began being equated to, you know, when I win the lottery, there's this feeling of, oh, we can do, we can can do things again. We can have things again. We can go places again. Things will be normal. There was this need to go back to normal, to go back to the way things were before the whole world had seemed to stand on its head. If you consider what the world and what the people across the United States had been through in the last few years, a world war, you have millions of soldiers killed across the world. There is an end to these great empires that had spanned hundreds of years, the creation of new countries, a redrawing of the world map. There was a devastating worldwide pandemic that was known as the Great Influenza and more commonly known as the Spanish flu. We have had a little taste of what people in 1919 and 1920 must have felt. This burning desire and need to get back to life. You can't go back to the way things were, right? Life is different. The world is different. But just get back to your life, to be able to live life. When we talk of the 1920s, we often refer to it as the roaring 20s. Why was it roaring? Was it roaring for everyone? These are all questions we will delve into within the next few podcasts. Before we can talk about his presidency and how his administration helped to change the United States, we need to discuss who Warren G. Harding was and how the presidency became possible for him. How someone who at the time of their death was celebrated, beloved and mourned, and yet today is considered one of the worst presidents in history. You know, we'll kind of debate a bit at the end, you know, is that a warranted legacy for him? So Warren Gamaliel Harding. Now that we all know what the G stands for, it's a biblical name. Gamaliel was a Pharisee and an expert on Jewish law and what, you know, the apostle Paul studied under him. So that's where that name gets its claim to fame. But he was named after his grandfather. Warren G. Harding was born on November 2nd, 1865 in Ohio. He was the oldest of eight children His father was a Civil War veteran, a teacher, and became a physician. His mother was a midwife, and she also earned her MD and became a doctor. 
The family was not wealthy by any means. He grew up in a very small farming town. And in order to discuss his life and his presidency, today we are joined by Sherry Hall, who is the site manager of the Harding Presidential Sites in Marion, Ohio. So one of the first things that I would like for you to discuss is, you know, there's not much out about his childhood and his education. Can you discuss a little bit about that? He has a very normal childhood in that he grew, grows up in a, a farm family, pretty much, become a large family. He's the oldest of eight. His two middle siblings, though, actually died on the same day, which had to be extremely traumatic um, in 1878. But they're a very loving family. They're a very close-knit family. They don't have tons of money. So um, they live in a very small little village called Blooming Grove, um, which was settled by uh, ancestors of Warren Harding in 1840. So um, they have deep roots there and Blooming Grove is um, in Morrow County in Ohio. So it's maybe oh, 40 minutes from Marion. He, he goes, most of the kids in it that he knows go to school through the eighth grade, and that's it. He ends up um, having some additional schooling, which for a rural kid was, was pretty good. But, you know, he doesn't, uh, his mother really is the centerpiece of their family. She's very spiritual. She's the one that takes the kids to church. She's the one who really passes on the, the morals, what you're supposed to do, right and wrong, and all that. Um, so she's an extremely important figure in their family. And he starts college at a very young age, because by 19, he's done. So he attended um, Ohio Central College, and he was known for being a good student. And, you know, and he worked a couple of different odd jobs, but then he starts this newspaper. Well, he buys a newspaper. And the newspaper you know, was struggling when he purchased it, but he's able to turn it into one of the most successful newspapers in town. Can you talk a little bit about why people gravitated towards his paper? Yeah, let me start off by addressing this is college. It is Ohio Central College. To us, it would be a high school, okay? Because most of the kids, by that time, the family is living in Caledonia, which is another small village about eight miles east of Marion. Again, most of his friends go to school through the eighth grade. He goes to Ohio Central College at the age of 14. So 14 to 17, we would consider it, you know, a high school today, a high school experience. But for, uh, and the college was located in this, another little village called Iberia, which strangely enough was this mecca of education in the, in this rural area. You know, yes, he, he graduates with a Bachelor of Arts degree and everything, but experience-wise, we wouldn't equate it to a college experience today. Um, but he's schooled in the classics, and, you know, he gets a very solid education. He works on the uh, school newspaper called The Spectator, and that's where he gets really uh, kind of a first uh, experience in writing some editorials and that kind of thing. The family moves to Marion um, when he's still in school. So he, he boards 
uh, he's staying at the school. And then when he's done with school, he joins them in Marion. Uh, the family has moved there because his father, who I'll call Doc Harding, that's he was a homeopathic doctor, thinks, okay, it's a bigger town, even though there were only 3,000 people here at that time. He's got more clientele. He can build his business. By that time, too, Mrs. Harding, Phoebe, she has been a midwife and she earns her medical degree, which is extremely unusual for a female at that time. Absolutely. So he joins the family there. He's decided he wants to stake his life to newspapering. He's tried reading law, which is instead of going to law school, you read law, you studied with an established attorney and you read law books and you kind of followed the lawyer around. That's what you did. He says, that's not my thing. I'm not going to do that. He's teaches school for one quarter in a one-room schoolhouse, and he hates it. He can't wait till school is out. He's done with that. So he's, you know, like a lot of young people, he's trying a couple different things to see what it is that he wants to stake his claim to. There is a, he has worked part-time at a newspaper called The Mirror, The Democratic Mirror, and but he really likes this one um, Republican candidate named James Blaine. And he wears uh, a campaign hat into the office. And the Democratic mirror has, is a Democratic newspaper. James Blaine is Republican. And the editor tells him to take the hat off. And he says, no, I'm, I'm really, you know, he's, he's, you know, 18, 19 years old. No, if I'm going to leave it on. And the guy says, well, you're going to lose your job. Then. And he's like, well, so be it. And yeah. in an impetuous, youthful move, he gives up that job. But then there's this opportunity at a sheriff's sale, which every county has its properties that um, maybe are foreclosed upon and they revert back to the county. The Marion Daily Star is up for bid. And it's been passed around from hand to hand for a long time. Nobody's made a success of it. And it's called the Marion Daily Star, but it is never published every day. It's not, it just kind of comes out whenever whoever owns it at the time can do it. So he decides he's going to buy this. He borrows some money for his, from his father. He talks two buddies into also chipping in. One has no interest in newspapers. He just has some extra change in his pocket at the moment. And they think, yeah, let's make a go of this. So at the age of 19, yes, he and two friends buy the Marion Daily Star. The old guard in town think this is hysterical. So they're kind of laughing behind his back at this. And he does make a success out it. He buys out his first one partner and then uh, within a year, the second partner, he says, no, I, I'm this, I'm all in on this. And he does work steadily at it. He has, you know, he has no money for quite a while. He's still living at home, which men and women did until they got married. His mother is bringing food down to the newspaper office um, for his little staff. And he starts turning it around, and mostly it's through his editorial writing. He starts getting a reputation among other newspapers that, hey, this kid's got some ideas. 
and slowly starts gaining credibility. But he just, you know, he went through a lot, a lot of lean times before he turned it around. You know, I, I know he tried to keep his editorials balanced. You know, while he was a Republican living in a very Democratic town, you know, he put his points out there and he made his position known, but he did try to keep things balanced, which I think people respected him for and, and you know, liked the newspaper for. Yeah, that's true. Um, but newspapers generally declared their politics at that time. And that was done all the way through the 1960s with newspapers. You declared if you're Republican, Democrat, socialist, there were a lot of socialist papers at that time, which is weird to think of today. Um, and then your editorial, which is opinion, you know, people sometimes don't understand the difference between the editorials and news coverage. The editorials would have a decidedly Republican slant. He started out as a, and he said he was independent with Republican leanings, which the other newspaper editors were like, what, what is that supposed to mean? Yeah. And then <clears throat> pretty soon he says, okay, I'm a Republican paper. And his wife helps out and, and does a lot of work with his newspaper as well. Yeah, he marries Florence Kling Dole. She is a divorced woman. Not a lot of divorced women at that time. They uh, marry in 1891. He's 25. She is 30. And she has a 10-year-old son, Marshall. Florence is a very interesting person in this story. Very smart. A very good at business and accounting. Something women traditionally were not taught at that time. But her father was the richest man in marrying. And I really can't take anything away from him. He was a self-made man, diversified his business interests. And so he's, he starts three banks. He is uh, importing French horses into the farming community. He's doing all kinds of stuff. But he definitely is the big man around town uh, financially. Um, he teaches her about mortgages and takes her with her him as he's collecting rents from the farmland that he owns. So she gets a, a, a real firsthand taste of business. And again, that's not something most women knew anything about. So she was a real asset to Warren at the newspaper. She did not run the newspaper by any stretch. And sometimes that's been reported as she's actually running the newspaper. She's not. She fills in for the business manager when he's on vacation or he's not around. She also reorganizes the delivery of the newspaper. Back then, you had a lot of the, the newsboys would throw the newspaper on your front porch. And she is reorganizing how those boys are paid so they're directly employed by the newspaper and not a middleman, which was the tradition then. But she takes that off Warren's plate. With a small newspaper, you got to do everything. So she takes that off of his plate, allowing him to focus on the news product. Yeah. You know, for Harding, he goes from being a newspaper man to getting involved in politics. And, you know, he enters politics at the end of the 1800s, in 1899. So he's elected to public office at the height of the progressive era. You have hot button issues like involvement in World War One and prohibition and women's suffrage. And as a member of the Senate, Harding is often referred to as a conciliator. 
And he also calls it, you know, a really nice place. A lot of senators probably would not refer to the Senate as that. Why do you think he doesn't take a firmer stand on on issues? You're talking about the period when he's a U.S. senator. He starts out as an Ohio senator in 1899. He's elected lieutenant governor of the state. He runs for Ohio governor in 1910, but he loses that election. And then in 1914, he's elected to the U.S. Senate. That's the first election in which senators are directly elected. Before then, they're appointed by the legislatures of each state. Yeah, and he was the first uh, popularly elected senator from Ohio, right? Yes. So this is a new ballgame here where the constituents, the voters, actually, their, their vote matters. For that, you know, it's all in the hands of your legislature and what party is in power at the time. So he very firmly believes that he represents the voters of Ohio. Okay, so he's going to reflect their opinion, whether he particularly agrees with it or not. He thinks that is his job. And you can, you know, you can argue what a senator or a Congress men or congresswomen even today what is their responsibility is it to reflect those opinions or do they add their opinions in you know there's going to be a hundred different answers but that's how he thought of it he was known as a conciliator he did work on both sides of the aisle he had very good friends on both sides of the aisle something that i know we can't even imagine today senators working amicably with members of the opposite party. But it, it really was a situation where even if he disagreed with somebody, they were friends outside of the Senate. They would go to lunch. They would. That's how it was then. It wasn't as divided as today. He could have come in more strongly on issues. He absolutely could have. And one issue in point was prohibition. He didn't think prohibition would work. He could have lived long enough. He would have been proven right. He thought there was no way to police it. There was no, and he thought you're personal morality should dictate if you're going to drink or not. Okay. But Ohio was very much uh, a temperate state. And so he's like, well, my voters, that's what the people of Ohio want. They want me to vote for prohibition. So that's what I do. He's also not shy about saying, you know, I don't think it's going to work, but okay. But I am the voice of the people of Ohio. Is it true that while he was president, I mean, prohibition is still the law, but does he drink in the White House and serve liquor in the White House? The prohibition takes effect in January of 1920. Okay, so he's still in the Senate. And then, as we know, he soon is elected president. I think what a lot of people don't realize about prohibition is it's not illegal to drink. It's illegal to make alcohol. It's illegal to buy and sell. You have two years notice that prohibition was going into effect because it has to be ratified by the states. So if you have a pension for drinking liquor or anything, you're going to stock up your basement or whatever, right? Because you have two years notice. And that's what people did. It wasn't like alcohol was wiped off the face of the earth in in the United States. You could still drink in your home. You could still, you could be served alcohol. You couldn't buy it. You couldn't sell it. And there was confusion among the people at that time. Well, can I get an exemption for wine, for churches? It's okay. We want to do communion. Can we get an exemption? 
And there were all these applications for exemptions. Okay, well, I want to, my doctor says I need, people used whiskey at that time if they had pneumonia. Can I get an exemption, a medical exemption? So it was very confusing. So when he was in the White House, it was not served in the public rooms or at public events or state dinners. In the private residence, yeah, he and Mrs. Harding did serve to their guests. Eventually, when he does run for president, he runs a campaign which is known as a front porch campaign. And he gives speeches from his front porch. And you now you have hundreds of thousands of people traveling. I read that they even had to just forget about the lawn. The lawn is gone. So many people are standing on it. Forget it. Um, but what I found especially interesting, and I think it would be impossible, especially people running for public office today to consider this, but over a dozen reporters lived on his property while he was campaigning for president. And I know the museum is creating a new exhibit about this. Can you speak a little bit about Harding's relationship with the press? The front porch campaign certainly would not work today and mostly because of television. You know, people are not going to travel across the country because they can turn on the news and see what any campaign is doing. This was the fourth front porch campaign in American history, all done by Ohio-born president. I don't know why it was just the Ohio-born president, but uh, Garfield, uh, Benjamin Harrison, McKinley, and then Harding will have the last one. He is emulating McKinley's campaign. To uh, People are saying they kind of look alike. Harding had worked in McKinley's campaign 20 years before. Of course, McKinley is a martyred president. So he's, you know, the, the memory of him is still with people. And he's got a front porch that perfect where it has a, a round end on it, kind of like a bandstand. It was not built for the campaign. Um, it was built uh, 17 years before that. It's just happenstance. He's a newspaper man, the only journalist we've ever had elected president. So he knows what the journalists need as far as workspace. He builds a small cottage. It's a mail order cottage called a and he calls it the press now. Okay, they don't live on his property. They work there. So there's 17 journalists hang out there. They have, there's a small front porch on that building. They thought that was cool. They had their own front porch. They called it the shack. <laughs> and they like to hang out in the press house. That's where they had their desk. Um, typewriters. There were two telegraph lines coming in there. Can't send their stories via via computer, via email or anything like that. They're going to have to send it by telegram to the newspaper they work for, or they call it in by phone and dictate it. They are going to live um, different places in the neighborhood. What's interesting too is what was going on in the community behind the scenes to make this campaign work. It wasn't long before a lot of the folks in this neighborhood learned that if they had an extra bedroom or something, they could rent it out to one of the journalists or one of the campaign workers, make some little side money on this. If they provided a good breakfast, they could charge for that as well. So you know, everybody was doing quite well financially uh, in Marion during the Front Porch campaign. And, and it's fascinating to look at the inner workings of the campaign, how it worked in a, in a small town with more than 600,000 people coming here over just a three-month period. As they, the campaign was very short. It didn't start till July 31st of 1920. It ended before Election Day. And uh, it's not the two-year event that we're used to today by any stretch. He loved during the campaign to go out and hang out with the journalists. These were his people. He would light a 
big cigar and sit on the porch railing and say, shoot. And they'd start asking him questions. And that's, but that's how it was done at that time. It was, um, there was respect back and forth. And that yeah. continued when he went into the White House. You know, he wins really a landslide victory. He wins 60% of the popular vote. He wins the majority of the Electoral College. And it's also the first presidential election where women are eligible to vote. Well, his slogan is a return to normalcy. What do you think he meant by that? And was the promise of a return to normalcy achieved? Most historians misinterpret what he means by that. They think he means, okay, return to normalcy is be, let's go back to before World War I. Okay, everything will be just dandy. Let's just go back in time. He's not naive. The world cannot be the same. He knows that. A return to normalcy, which I don't think he explained very well, was a return to a normal way of living. It was a return to industry starting up again, because we're in an economic recession coming out of World War I. And the nation just kind of stopped. There was no plan in place under the Wilson administration. How do you transition from wartime to, to peacetime? We've never done it before. How do you go about doing that? Well, because there was no plan in place. And then, of course, Wilson has his strokes and is, is not terribly active in the um, presidency, everything's just at a standstill. No one quite knows how to get things going again. So return to normalcy meant let's get industry going again. Let's get the economy going again. Even you and your own household, let's not look over our shoulders like waiting for the next catastrophe to happen. Yes, we've had a world war. Yes, we've had a flu epidemic, but we're going to move forward. And this is, let's just, act normal. Let's just, you know, and I think we can almost relate to that right now in 2022 coming out of our pandemic. Everyone is so eager to go back to living their lives. That's what he meant. Let's just carry on here. It didn't mean we were going to forget these last few years and this war and all this. That, That doesn't make any sense. And he didn't mean that. What do you think were the highlights of his presidency, of his administration, and what they were able to get done? He's only president for 29 months before he dies of a heart attack. What he wanted to do was when he goes into office, as I said, he's, we have a post-war recession. Okay, there's a high unemployment rate. The inflation's out of control. Businesses during the war, a lot of them, added production lines to make war material, okay? Or they switched what they were making to make things for battleships. A really good example of this is the Lionel company that makes the- The trains. Trains. They quit making trains and they started making compasses for battleships, okay? So they've hired extra people. They've added production lines. This is true with a lot of industry. Well, now- when the war ends in, in 1918, everyone's celebrating the armistice and you might get a pink slip the next day because they're laying you off. They don't need you anymore. The unemployment rate just skyrockets. And then you have all the soldiers coming back from Europe at the same time. Look, they want their jobs back. Women hadn't gone to work in World War I. It wasn't Rosie the Riveter in World War II. It started with World War I. 
They're working the farms. They're in the factories. We usually think of World War II for that. It was like, okay, women, get out of here. Go back to your kitchens. We're, we're back. And everything is just in a, in a snarl, um, unemployment-wise. So he says, okay, we're going to get industry straightened out so they can hire normally again. If you had been working during the war at one of these factories, they wanted you to work there. So they, they gave you increased wages. Now the industry says, um, and we're going to go back to pre-war wage levels. Well, you're not happy if you're one of those workers because you're like, well, wait a minute. During the war, I was making twice as much. Well, I know, but we don't need, you know, we aren't competing for you anymore. We have plenty of labor. So that's when we see some strikes going on. We have a lot of social issues coming out of the end of the war. So we have a lot of labor management issues, a lot of violent strikes in some cases. We have racial issues coming out of the war. Black soldiers had fought valiantly in World War I. In Europe, they were treated more fairly than they had been in this country. They came back thinking things are going to be different. They're not. They're, again, treated like lesser citizens, especially in the South. So there is racial unrest. Women are like, okay, we have worked long and hard for this right to vote. It barely happens in time for the 1920 election, barely, because of some games being played. And they're being said, okay, we don't, we don't need you in the business world anymore. Go back. And they're like, wait a minute, we, were, we earned the right to vote. So there are, there's a lot of unrest. Um, one of the things that Warren Harding wanted to do, his return to normalcy, was to kind of recognize the problems some of these groups of people were having. He wants an anti-lynching bill to be passed. That just got passed, like, I don't know, in the last two months. That was proposed during the Harding administration and countless times since, but always bottlenecked by the Southern Democrats. So he is working for to put that race question on the national table for discussion. Doesn't go very far. So you've got a lot of upheaval that, and he wants to create a Department of Public Welfare. The infant mortality rate is extremely high then. He wants to make sure that there are health and sanitation measures put in place for pregnant women and their children. I always think of it as he sees the statistics. He sees the government reports, what's going on, but he sees the people behind the statistics. That's how he's built. And I think that is also the editor in him looking for the people stories. He starts the Bureau of the Budget to realign the way the federal budget is being calculated. It's really amazing to think that we had no overall federal budget system. We had no real feel for how much revenue we were bringing in, what the expenditures were. It was done department by department. And you had the stack of bills that would go to Congress from each department. They had no comprehensive feel for what the federal government's money was doing. And he said, you know, I just run a small business, but I don't operate this way. So he started the Bureau of the Budget and was very intent on eliminating duplication of jobs, of duties, uh, puts into place Charles Dawes at the, at the head of that. And, I mean, he demanded accountability and he went to each department and says, okay, what are we doing? What can we get rid of? And so they want to streamline the federal budget. 
That's so interesting that because he he's trying to get things in order, but yet within his house, within his administration, there are all of these scandals. And it's those scandals that he himself is not directly a part of, but it's probably the biggest thing that taints his legacy. I mean, if you asked historians who's one of the worst presidents in history, they'd probably give you Harding's name. Like he would be ranked among the lowest. So you have this guy who's really trying to get all these very ideological, very positive things done. But yet if you look at his legacy, it would paint a very, very different picture. That's right. Can you talk a little bit about some of those scandals? One of the ones, you know, people still bring it up today, Teapot Dome. Okay. They don't know what Teapot Dome is, but they know Teapot Dome and Hardings. It was, it's a complicated situation involved his secretary of the interior, Albert Fall. Um, Albert Fall was in the Senate before he was an interior uh, from New Mexico. Um, at that time, and really starting with Theodore Roosevelt, you usually put somebody from the West in interior because they're in charge of land. And I, I, I don't know, they, that was just uh, what was done. Of, yeah. Yeah. It was just kind of a tradition that there's all this open land out there and that's what you did. Teapot Dome is a real place. It's in, mm-hmm. it's in Wyoming. It's a rock uh, that kind of marks federal oil lands and they always Everyone back to Native Americans always thought it looked like a teapot. Um, actually, a tornado knocked the handle off. An, an irrelevant thing, but it's kind of interesting. So it doesn't look like that anymore. Oil lands were in charge of Navy, uh, the Navy Department, because they needed oil for their battleships. Well, Edwin Denby, Secretary of the Navy, Navy and Albert Fall, they say, you know, it makes more sense for the oil lands to be an interior because you're already managing all these other federal lands. That makes sense to switch it off. So Edwin Denby and Teddy Roosevelt Jr., who was assistant secretary of the Navy, go to the White House and they sit in with fall and they talk to President Harding and they say, OK, this is what we want to do. We want to move the oil lands from Navy to interior. We think it makes sense. And. Harding says, you're all agreed. This is what you want to do. They give their reasons why. And he says, okay, signs an executive order. That's his role in Teapot Dome right there. Signs that executive order. So the lands, the oil lands transfer to interior. It's not like Albert Fall has some ulterior motive at that point in time. They just think, really, it just kind of goes along with straightening up the federal government. This is good housekeeping. Albert Fall is accused of bribing, taking a bribe, a $100,000 bribe from two oil men in exchange for getting permission to drill on federal oil lands. Now, that's not illegal as far as drilling. We still do that today. We lease out federal lands. And the General Leasing Act of 1920 under Wilson makes that allowable. So that's not the problem. The problem is that he is accused of bypassing the open bid process and just giving these leases to these two guys who he's known for a long time instead of doing the open bid process. That's where the problem lies. And this comes out mostly after Harding's death. And the Congress starts uh, an investigation in October of 23, Harding dies in 
August, so just two months before. Albert Fall has already left government. Um, he'd only planned to be interior secretary for a year, so he's already left government anyway. This go, eventually goes to trial, and it goes to several trials because the, there are deadlocked juries, and there's all these colorful witnesses, and it's, and it's entertaining. There's people read it in the newspapers and, you know, what's going on. It's in the news all of the 20s. So people are saying, oh, that's associated with the Hardy administration because that's all they hear. When we get to the end of the 20s, Albert Fall is convicted of taking the bribe. He is sentenced to prison. He doesn't stay very long. He is broken health-wise by that time. Um, But he is the first cabinet member sent to prison. The oil men are acquitted of giving him the bribe. So you're like, what? But he took it, but they didn't give it to him. So in the end, like I said, it makes no sense. The funny thing is, is one of these, the oil deals called for putting oil reserves at Pearl Harbor, which were used in World War II. So there was a little bit of benefit from that because we, they saw that we needed oil reserves there for our battleships. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. You know, Harding, like you said, he, he dies in office. He does not finish his term. And he becomes ill after a trip abroad. He travels to Canada. He travels to, I think, Alaska, I think, right? He ends up in California because he needs rest. Can you talk a little bit about Harding's death and his, his burial? He goes on the Western trip in June of 23. You know, people say, well, it's a re-election trip. No, it's not. He had planned to go the summer of 22, but we had very serious uh, impending strikes in the rail and coal industries. And so he stays in Washington to try to help behind the scene to reconcile those situations because either one could cripple the nation. So it, it postpones the trip. What, do you, what the goal is, is to go to Alaska. Alaska is a territory at that time. He is getting reports from lots of federal agencies about Alaska, and all these reports contradict each other. There is a big fuss even then about natural resources, just like there is today. So you have conservationists that say, no, we don't want to disturb the natural resources, just like you do today. And developers who say, hey, all this is sitting up here. We need to use it just as you do today. He decides I need to go there and see for myself what the situation is. Again, is that the newspaper man in him? I believe it is. On the way then, he's going to give a few speeches en route because he's got to go by train. He's not feeling well when he leaves the White House. He's having chest pain. He has indigestion. He's so tired. He's not sleeping well. A lot of it points to a very bad bout of flu that he had in January of 23. Some uh, physicians believe that he might have suffered a mild heart attack at that time. He's not feeling great, but they don't think a lot about it. They don't recognize heart problems like we do today. We Mm. know all those symptoms today. He has high blood pressure. He's had it since he was in his 20s. He says, that's just how I roll. His brother, who is a doctor, There are letters that we have over the years saying, hey, you need to change your diet. You need to. And he says, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he doesn't really do anything. But nobody recognizes heart trouble for that. They say they're seeing every symptom as as 
separate. They're saying, well, you've got chest pains because you're stressed or, or whatever. So he goes on the trip. They say, this will be good for you. You can rest. Well, there wasn't any rest on that trip. His secretary, his personal secretary, he says, you know, you should really speak to this Kiwanis group or this group or that. And he does because he doesn't want to disappoint anybody. He's a firm believer that if you have a chance to meet your president, you should be able to do that. So he doesn't want to turn down him. And still, even when the train stops to take on water or to refuel, uh, if people are gathered, he'll say a few what he called remarks. He's just going to say hi to him. He's not giving a speech, but he goes out and greets them. Um, there was a woman and her child. He saw, I think he was going through the northern states. Caesar out of his train window running across the fields. And he says, stop the train because she's coming to see me. And they said, she's not going to bother voting. So why are you bothering? And he got really irked at that. And he said, she, she's one of our citizens. And she's obviously coming to see me. And he had the train stopped. And he spoke to her and her son for a couple minutes. And she gave him a basket with some homemade jelly and a loaf of bread. You know, he didn't see them as voters. He saw them as just people. He stopped in Kansas. He saw a farmer working out in the fields and he had the train stop and he went out in the field and talked to him. He said, how are our policies helping you? How are, is it helping you? Cause he called, well, Harding called this trip to the voyage of understanding. He, he, he thought if the nation understood what the administration was trying to do, that would help them. And then if he understood what was not yet being addressed, that would make the administration react better. So, He's talking to this farmer. How, how are you doing? What's, have our policies helped? What do you still need help with? So there's all kinds of stories along the way of those kind of interactions. So he gets to Alaska, goes by train, then boat to Alaska. He's talking to native fishermen because they're complaining, hey, these developers are coming in and they're destroying the fishing industry. So he's gathering all this information. He's not giving really speeches in Alaska, but he's brought some other cabinet members with them. And he says, you go out and meet with these people. And I want you guys to listen to them and see what's going on. When he leaves Alaska, he is really fired up. He, he's excited. He can, he's predicting statehood for Alaska in 1923, which doesn't help happen for decades. And he says, I think we can craft some policy that can solve both developers' wishes and the conservationists. I think we, and he's very excited about this. He's anxious to get back to Washington and work on it course, that doesn't happen. He's giving a speech in Seattle and falters, not feeling well. He gets through the speech, but he shows some confusion during that speech. He misspeaks a couple of words. So they said, okay, you're exhausted. We're putting you on the train. We're going to cancel every other speech along the West Coast. And we're going straight to San Francisco because that's where the nearest cardiologist was, Ray Wilbur Lyman, who was at Stanford. He had a uh, Dr. Weeks, who was his secretary of war, was a physician in his cabinet. So he's there. He's got his personal physician there. His White House doctor, Joel Boone. Joel Boone does um, diagnosis on a large heart because he's doing some palpitations. He can feel it. You know, Warren's blood pressure is through the roof. I mean, there's obviously something going on. So they go straight to San Francisco. He insists on walking off of the train. That's the last photograph taken of him. Uh, he doesn't want to be carried off 
on a stretcher or anything like that. And he's taken to the eighth floor of the Palace Hotel in a suite of rooms, the presidential suite. And that's where the doctors attend him. That's when they're monitoring him. But, you know, there's not much to do for him. They know he's got a little touch of pneumonia in one a lung, they give him digitalis, which is still given to some heart patients, but there's not much they can do except have him rest and see if he can come out of this. Cardiac medicine was not really recognized yet. There were a lot of doctors who didn't think there was such a thing as a heart attack. And they didn't know, okay, is the heart causing these symptoms we're seeing? You know, the chest pains, the indigestion, all that. Is the heart causing it or are the symptoms causing the heart to malfunction? So they weren't even decided on that. There are some theories that maybe gallstones played a role in this as well. We have all his medical records from that trip. We actually did a event a few years ago about that trip and his death. And his grandnephew, who was a doctor, interpreted all of those medical records. And he had actually submitted them all to a lot of cardiologists that he knows and said, okay, just analyze these. What's going on? And it was fascinating because he could put it in layman's words. Okay, his respiration is this. That means he's really panting. It was really fascinating. because, And for the first time, I understood the changes his body was going through. It looked like he was pulling out of it. In fact, the morning of August 2nd, 1923, everybody's breathing a little sigh of relief. They're talking about, well, where can he go to convalesce and just rest, get a strength back? The reporters, the doctors are going down to the dining room to get a bite to eat. They're not hovering all around his door. He tells his sister, I think I'm out of the wood. And that night at 7.30, Mrs. Harding's reading a magazine article to him. It's a favorable magazine article. And he says, that's good. Keep going. And he dies. People were absolutely shocked. You know, both his entourage, that things went downhill so quickly, and, and the nation was as well. So you had the train coming back across the country. It had just gone through all these towns going west, and everybody who never thought they'd catch a glimpse of the president, was celebrating him and everything. Now it's a very different feel as it returns east. You have thousands of mourners lining these railroad tracks as the president's body is brought back to Washington and eventually brought back to Ohio. But there was a great feeling of national mourning when he died. And, you know, he dies and he's beloved. And as you said earlier, a lot of those stories don't really come to light until after he dies. He's no longer alive to defend himself or to say, I had nothing to do with it. There's just all of these, you know, strings kind of pointing back to his administration. And so, you know, you think about his legacy and it's like, is it deserved? Does he deserve to be on the bottom of this list of worst presidents? I think that we're seeing about the last 10 years, we have seen people getting to know Warren Harding for the first time, I think. He was somebody historians didn't bother with. It was just, yes, his, his legacy was cemented. That's there, what, there wasn't any purpose in examining anything. And we're seeing a, a discovery of, of him. Um, all the things that he accomplished fell by the wayside because of Teapot Dome. There was also um, a scandal involving the Veterans Bureau that happened in January of 23 when Charles Forbes, who was the Veterans Bureau director, and the Veterans Bureau is quite an accomplishment. It's the precursor of the VA. So helping those disabled veterans who had been in the World War not only get medical care, but job training 
to assimilate back into society. So Charles Forbes is running a little black market as they're liquidating medical supplies from Europe after the war. They're being stored in warehouses along the East Coast. And he's making some, some handy deals and pocketing the money. Warren hears about this and calls him to the White House in January of 23 and asks for his resignation. Here's where he makes a mistake because Charles Forbes says, okay, I'll turn in my resignation, but I need to go to, to England first. Warren should have just said, you're not going to England, Turn, you know, you're resigning. And, but this is the weakness of Warren Hardy in that, yes, he sees the humanity of people, but in this case, he's got to, he granted that humanity to Forbes and he shouldn't have. Forbes does resign. And this is reverts to old Ohio politics, where if somebody's causing a problem, you get rid of them, you put someone else in and you keep going with your work. Okay, so he he does replace Forbes. He said, okay, Veterans Bureau, keep going ahead with your work. We got rid of the troublemaker. But he should have called for that investigation because without it, it looks like he's complicit. He makes, he fumbles there. The man is dead. He can't defend himself. Mrs. Harding, during the, the Teapot Dome hearings, she wants to testify and she's talked out of it. And they said, oh, that's not dignified for a first lady to do. And she's very frustrated because she says, they're, they're not telling the truth. This is, you know, this isn't the way it happened. But you could say anything you wanted to about Warren because he's dead. Mrs. Harding dies just 15 months later in 1924. So now you can say anything you want about her. That's the biggest thing that affected his legacy. You started having books written about you know, all these books that just were not true, um, written about the Hardings. Um, Then you had a book come out in 1927 called The President's Daughter. And that involved a woman by the name of Nan Britton, who alleged that Harding was the father of her child. Yeah, they had had an affair. Yeah. And she was from Marion. Um, She had always, she's got a backstory, let's say, in that she always... From the time she was like 14 years old, she had this big crush on then Senator Harding and would follow him around Marion. And women were telling her mother, you know, you need to get your daughter under control. She's really acting out of the norm. So people here knew that. They did not believe her for the most part. She sues the Harding estate, says that she wants $50,000. And they said, well, do you have any letters? Is there anything that will prove your story? No, she didn't have anything. She loses that. But that absolutely damages his reputation further. In 2015, there was DNA testing done on Nan's grandson and two, a grandnephew and a grandniece of the president. The results of that were there was a very high likelihood that the two Hardings were second cousins couldn't do a paternity test or anything on him, but that's the closest as what's going to get. So we would have told our visitors prior to that day that we didn't know if it was true. But we changed that day at the DNA test and we said, yes, in our opinion, it's true. Yeah. Then to add to the, the perfect storm even more, there was a group formed after the president's death called the Hardy Memorial Association. They were formed to build his final resting place, the Hardy Memorial, which is a a very marvelous uh, structure. So they were the owners of both the Hardy Memorial and then Mrs. Harding willed the home that she and Harding had and most of the belongings to that same association. She really wanted it to be opened as a museum so people could learn what her husband tried to do for America. 
they also were the owners of Harding's presidential papers. At that time, the each president owned their papers. Their own papers, yeah. So Mrs. Harding, after Warren died, they were hers. She also wills those to the Harding Memorial Association. And the man who was head of the association decided no one should be able to look at them because they'll write another crazy book, he thought, or whatever. But in reality, that hurt because legitimate historians and authors could not go back to those primary sources. And they were not released to the public until the 1960s when they were given to the Ohio Historical Society. And by that time, nobody cared. Yeah, long gone, long forgotten. I think, you know, Harding definitely falls into this category of presidents that is deserving of people taking a closer look at and and considering the other side of the coin. And, and, and I think they realize once looking at the facts that he is rather undeserving of the place that he has been given in, in history. Yeah. And, you know, what we have found, and we asked that question at the site, we have a new presidential library museum we've not been open quite a year we restored the harding home to its 1920 appearance Um, so we have a lot to offer that that we've never been able to before and one of those things we we ask is okay about that legacy who gets to determine anybody's legacy and can it be changed and is there a certain time period you have to wait before you do i mean what And it's the same for all of us. All of us leave a legacy. Can it change and who gets to do it? And I think, too, that there's relevance in the world we live in today with everything on Facebook and everything that, you know, somebody's reputation can be just shredded in a matter of minutes and in a tweet. Is that fair? And how is it? How is the reputation rebuilt? All those things. When people come into our museum, they're like, I've never heard any of this information before. And we cover, you know, the scandals. We There's all these things people never heard in their lives about Harding. Unbelievable. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time and your expertise and just the information that you've shared with us today. Thank you so much. And of course, our listeners, if you're ever in Ohio, go check out the Warren G. Harding Presidential Museum and Library. Thank you so much for your time today, Sherry. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.